Here is the word of the Lord from 1 Thessalonians 5, starting in verse 12. Now we ask you, brothers and sisters, to give recognition to those who labor among you and lead you in the Lord and admonish you, and to regard them very highly in love because of their work. Be at peace among yourselves, and we exhort you, brothers and sisters, warn those who are idle, comfort the discouraged, help the weak, be patient with everyone. See to it that no one repays evil for evil to anyone, but always pursue what is good for one another and for all. Rejoice always, pray constantly, give thanks in everything, for this is God's will for you in Christ Jesus. Don't stifle the Spirit. Don't despise prophecies, but test all things. Hold on to what is good. Stay away from every kind of evil. Now may the God of peace himself sanctify you completely. And may your whole spirit, soul, and body be kept sound and blameless at the coming of our Lord Jesus Christ. He who calls you is faithful. He will do it. Brothers and sisters, pray for us also. Greet all the brothers and sisters with a holy kiss. I charge you by the Lord that this letter be read to all the brothers and sisters. The grace of our Lord Jesus Christ be with you. Thank you, Peter. Morning, church. Good to see you this morning. My name is John Fox. I'm one of the pastors here, and um, it's good to hear about the foster care ministry as well. And I think I heard that uh, the uh, elderly people will be at the table, like Mark said, and uh, he also said Doug. So, Doug, you're an elderly person, officially. Congratulations on that. Just kidding. Kind of. (laughs) But... uh, yeah, today we are going to be in the last section of First Thessalonians here. And before we do that, just have a couple things I'd like to share with you. Number one is that uh, we have a search, if you didn't know, if you're new with us, for a uh, lead pastor going on right now. And that search is continuing on. Not a whole lot is, is happening uh, as far as you see right now. It's all behind the scenes. But just to update you on that, the company that we have uh, selected to help us with that search is called Slingshot, and um, we're kind of just touching base with them weekly, but their process is that they say, you know, for the first uh, month, maybe two months, it's a lot of interviewing on their side, and they start with about a thousand candidates, and uh, so they've been talking to a lot of people over the past few weeks here, and um, eventually when that number gets down to uh, a handful, then they reach out to us, and the pastoral search team follows up with them, and, uh, and we go from there. So in the next few weeks, we should have some other announcement for you. I just want to let you know not to be in the dark on that. Second, uh, we also have a significant uh, building event coming up. We are having remodeling, talked a little, little bit about that. And this week is really important for us as a church related to that. Um, we have worked a deal with the contractors such that we said, you know what, if we do a fair amount of the demolition ourselves, then uh, could we do this and this and this? <laughs> and, they, and they said, yeah, I, that'll work. So uh, this week, what we're having is a few demo days, and that's going to be Wednesday, Saturday, and Sunday. More information at the end of the service about that. Um, but I highly encourage you to uh, show up for that. No registration, just show up with some gloves, a power tool, and uh, a hammer, and, you know, all the, all the things that you want to do at your house, you can do here. Because we're going to take down a wall. So uh, be sure to come one or more of those days for that. Now, let me go ahead and pray for us, and then we'll start the passage here. Father, as we look into your word this morning, and we see a vision for what it's like to be a Christian community that is set apart from the world. I ask that you would help us to absorb it, that we would soak it up. We would take in this wonderful picture that Paul gives us to the Thessalonians and how it worked out for them. And Lord, I ask that um, you would lead us by your spirit in doing this. Ask all in your son's name, amen. Well, like I said, we are finishing 1 Thessalonians. Next week, we start the second book or the second letter. And 
there's one kind of main question that I would ask you as we begin. I think it's a question that is under or behind everything that Paul has been talking about. Uh, mainly in chapter 4, verse 1, he says, uh, then, additionally then, brothers and sisters, we ask and encourage you in the Lord Jesus Christ that as you have received instruction from us on how you should live and please God, as you are doing, do this even more. And that phrase, how you should live and please God, is an underlying current for all that Paul has to say because it's related to the Thessalonians' desire for spiritual maturity. And I believe that's true for all of us, that if you are a believer in Christ, if you are a Christian, then something unites us all in this room, and that something is that you desire, or should desire, to grow spiritually up into the head who is Christ. And so this morning, here's the question. Do you want to grow? It's a very simple question. But it should be a core part of your life. Do you want to grow? And if that is true, as God's spirit is in you and leading you, and you want to grow, that means that you are going to need to do things. Because none of us has attained the full measure of Christ. None of us is fully mature. None of us is perfect. And I'm not going to get into it, but there is a kind of doctrine, kind of theology out there called complete sanctification that says you can achieve perfection in this life. We do not believe that as a church. We believe in progressive sanctification, which is where you continue to grow and grow and grow, even though you may have setbacks and failures in life. God is the one who is growing you. And, and so as Paul's talking about this, with that question in mind, do you want to grow? He finishes this letter with a picture of what this could look like for a local church, continuing to grow, to be this set-apart lifestyle, set-apart church even, with the culture around it. So I take this main point from this section, and the uh, main point goes like this, that believers in Jesus will become like Jesus together. Believers in Jesus will become like Jesus together. And this is a call, of course, for the Christian life to be something that's communal and not done in isolation. And there are really five different elements here that Paul is talking about. I really wanted to try to uh, link them together differently, but um, he talks about it this way. He, he'll, say, he'll talk about leaders, then he'll talk about members, then he'll talk about attitudes, then he'll talk about spirits, then he'll talk about blessings. And if that seems disjointed to you, it's not because it's disjointed, it's because he has so much to say in so very little time. Paul is like the mom who, as the kid is running out the door, says, did you get your backpack and your food and your hat? And don't forget your books. He's, he's saying, as you go, like all these things, I want you to know, because I love you so much. So there's a real paternal flavor to the end of this letter, and, um, and, and that's how Paul begins this. Now, he begins talking about leaders, talking to the whole church. He says, now we ask you, brothers and sisters, to give recognition to those who labor among you and lead you in the Lord and admonish you. Now, Paul is talking, again, this, this phrase, now we ask you, is setting off a different section of thought as he closes to say brothers and sisters. So he's addressing the whole congregation again, every person. And he says, there's leaders among you, and there's followers among you, by implication. And the leaders are worthy of respect. They're worthy of honor. They're worthy of recognition. And uh, the irony is not lost on me that Paul, who is the leader here, is saying, you need to honor your leaders, meaning you need to honor me. And he's also saying to the leaders who are, who are the leaders in the church that everybody else needs to honor you. So leaders tell people in the church that they need to honor you for leading. Yes, there's some irony. But Paul doesn't shy away from that. Uh, it makes me think of... Uh, uh, 
instance in my life uh, when in college, in uh, my undergrad Bible college, there was a uh, professor that I had that was very um, into the prosperity gospel, prosperity movement, which talks about money all the time. And if you sow your seed, then you'll get a blessing in return. So give me your money. Um, and uh, fairly manipulative. But uh, being, being in that uh, context, he had his birthday. And um, I don't normally tell stories like this, but it's just so fitting. So it was his birthday. And then uh, there, he had a birthday cake there. So we said, okay, great. We'll share your birthday with you. Happy birthday. And he also said, um, if, if you want to meet me in the hallway to wish me happy birthday, then I'll be in the hallway in a few minutes. And we said, okay, we're going to stay in the classroom. Um, but then I pieced it together. There was a policy in the Bible college that no transactions or passing of money could happen in the classroom itself. It would have to happen in the hallway or off the grounds. And uh, I knew that because we had other people come in to give us Bible software or whatever. And to pay for that, you'd have to do it in the hallway. So I remember thinking about this and thinking, he wants us to go into the hallway and give him money or things. And I thought, I will never do something like that in my entire life. Now, that is a bad application of this passage that talks about honoring your leaders. We need to do it. That is a manipulative way of doing it. And he's coming from a, a tradition that, that was just commonplace in. And by commonplace, I mean in Houston, where I grew up, it would be very normal in that tradition for somebody to give the pastor a Mercedes Benz on their birthday or a BMW. And if somebody else did that, then you would have to give something that was better. So we're not doing that. And I don't feel bad about saying this at all because I'm not asking for a Mercedes. Regardless, Paul is saying that you have leaders in your church and you should honor them. Now, I also want to say as a church, great job. We did this. We did this two weeks ago with Pastor Aaron. And it was phenomenal. You cannot go many places in this life to see honoring and recognition done, period. If you turn on the news, it's all talking bad about things and people. Every day. So rarely in our society, especially a Western society, do we take time, carve out time to honor other people and thank them for their leadership. And that is something Paul says we need to do. You need to do as a church, brothers and sisters, everybody. But he says there are reasons why you need to do this. First, out of three, he says, you need to honor your leaders because they labor. They labor among you. It's not that they're just doing things, but the laboring is taking place in your life. Uh, the word for labor here is something that's often used in, uh, in Greek literature as the Herculean effort. This is, this is big stuff. Something bad happened to you. Something wrong is going on in your life. And the leader in the church here is someone who steps in to say, how can I help you? How can I bear this burden with you? Maybe someone dies, maybe there's some financial disaster, and the leader steps in to say, I want to support you, I want to help you. And Paul says, somebody like that, you honor them. Now, this was somewhat controversial for Paul to say, because in the Greco-Roman world here, that's not why people got honored. People were respected by virtue of their status, their social status. Paul doesn't appeal to that. It's very countercultural. Instead, Paul says, the people that you should recognize and honor and respect are the people who are actually in your life leading you and helping you. So as a church member, that's something you need to hold in mind. This is the person to honor. He also says that besides laboring, they lead, which means literally that they are over you. They are over you. They have some charge over your life, seeking your welfare and your benefit. And this is something that makes us a little uncomfortable. We don't like people to be over us in authority. But Paul says, in the church, there are 
people. Now, he's not listing out deacons, overseers, pastors. He's not, he's not giving the list here. He's just saying leaders, generally. And um, that is really important. It's really important for us as a local church to accept that there are people over us, God has placed in our life, to be over us. And so much of this word has a connotation of, of protection, oversight, care. When false doctrine comes up as a pastor in the church, one of the things that is a responsibility for pastors, and Paul even says for leaders here, is to step in and say, ah, something doesn't smell right to me. I think that is absent of Jesus, what you're talking about. The leader is the person who's supposed to watch out over all that stuff and say, that's bad. That's bad theology. There is precedent for leading in this way. Third, he says, admonish. The leaders Paul's talking about are worthy of respect because they admonish. Now, out of all these things, I think this is probably the most persuasive for me uh, of a reason why leaders should be honored. The word involves correcting doctrinal and moral errors. And this is uncomfortable for us. If having people over us makes you feel a little nervous, admonishing is not a word that we use in our society. We do not like this word. Admonishing is when you step into someone's life and you correct them. It doesn't have to be harsh. But you are correcting truth from error. And you're saying, this is not good. For instance, in your life, if you see really unhealthy behavior by someone in your family, extended family, you have a sense that it's incumbent upon you to say something. If there's some kind of abuse that's happening, if there's some kind of... uh, Substance abuse is happening. And you're around a family member and they're drunk most of the time. What are you going to do? This is, this is a word for leaders that they are to take initiative in saying the difficult thing into people's lives. This is not easy. It's not enjoyable. But Paul says it needs to be done. And at the end of the day, who are the people who are going to do it in a local church? It's the leaders whether it's substance abuse or codependency or any kind of thing, sexual promiscuity. These are uncomfortable conversations. The leader is the one who has to step up to say something. Gene Green, theologian, talks about this word this way. He says, an author, an author would not employ this word to describe the task of imparting information. While personal correction has almost become anathema in the church today, ancient opinion was that correction by others was profitable for a person's well-being. To admonish was considered one of the primary responsibilities of parents toward their children, of their leaders, uh, of leaders toward their congregations, and of the various members of the congregation toward their brothers and sisters in the faith. We live in a culture that really chafes at this idea. We're so self-expressive and place such an emphasis on autonomy that it's hard for us to accept this. Nonetheless, Paul says, leaders are worthy of respect for this reason. And so I I think that's helpful. That's, That's good for us to know. Why should we respect leaders? Not by virtue of status. Not because of the title. Not what's on their on their office door, but it's because of how they are leading in your life. Not only that, Paul says that you are to, you are to honor them in love. See, this is not lip service. There's, there's heart motivation here. Honor them in love. And uh, there's a number of ways that this could work out. You know, I think uh, there's God-given imagination for this kind of thing, but I'll just give you one. Just one very simple way that this could benefit a leader to love them and honor them. Listen. Give them the benefit of the doubt. 
In a community group, when your leader tries to step into your life and bring a hard topic to you and say, I think we need to talk about this. Try to not let your first reaction be, who are you? Try to have a first reaction of, God has put you as a leader over me, so I'm going to listen. Maybe you're wrong. Maybe you're right. I'm going to listen. That's a way of showing honor. And if a Christian community can do that, it'll go a long way. So I have to ask you, do you have anyone like this in your life? I have a number of people like this in my life. And uh, we'll, we'll get to members in a second. But do you have anyone like this in your life who can step in and say the hard thing? Because there's a, a wonderful doctrine of, uh, in systematic theology called the deceitfulness of sin. And this doctrine essentially just says that sin is so deceptive you don't even know when you're sinning. Sin, by its nature, is something that blinds the person who sins. Therefore, you don't know, probably, a lot of the time that you're sinning. But guess what? Other people around you do. Which is why the Christian life is not supposed to be lived in isolation. And so Paul has a challenge for us here to say, honor your leaders, because these leaders, they got a hard job. And they got the job that you don't really want to do. You're not asking to do. So that's the first thing he says about leaders. But then there is something that's shared here because he moves on to members. He says, and we exhort you, brothers and sisters. So now again, he's setting it off separately. He's saying every single person in the room. Warn those who are idle. Comfort the discouraged. Help the weak. Be patient with everyone. See to it that no one repays evil for evil to anyone but always pursue what is good for one another and for all. Paul talks about the members of a local church. And he will give them three commands with a fourth on top. Because that's what he likes to do. We're only halfway there. There's a bunch of other commands coming. But the first one here is warn the idle. Now, um, depending on the translation you have, it'll be a different word every time for idle. Could be disobedient, could be unruly, it could be um, undisciplined, it could be lazy, idle. That's because this word in particular has a lot of uh, meaning to it, and it doesn't mainly mean lazy. Although in Second, Second Thessalonians, uh, as Paul writes back to them, he'll say that there's lazy people among you, and he uses the same word, and he says, we gave you a rule last time we were there to try to address this, and that was a very simple rule. If a person doesn't work, he doesn't eat. That's a hard one, right? Paul has no fuss about it. He says, someone doesn't work, they don't eat. End of story. That's how it works. Now, the, uh, the laziness involved there is not merely like people don't want to get up and do work. This word also tells us that it is a matter of being undisciplined when it comes to accepting apostolic authority. Paul here is providing instruction. Here's the church, this new thing in terms of the, the organization in the ancient world, the first century. And you got believers in Jesus. Great. We're all here. We believe in Jesus. Now what? Well, we should share things. Okay. We're all sharing things. We're living communally. And then all of a sudden you have people who are in this new communal living who are not merely, it's not that they're not contributing, but it's that they're hearing instruction, divine instruction, and they say, eh, I think I have a better idea about this. They're not accepting what God has to say for their life. And so this is not just a matter of being lazy. It's a matter of being unruly or undisciplined and even prideful, even prideful. So Paul says, what every single one of you have to do is, if you find people like that, warn them. You need to warn them. This is bad. This will not turn out well for you. God does not like this. You need to change the way that you live. The admonishing aspect spills over into the uh, responsibility for every member. Not only that, he moves on to say, comfort the discouraged. So if you think that Paul is all brass, you are wrong. 
Paul is incredibly tender. The second instruction here, comfort the discouraged. While some people need a swift kick in the pants, we would say, other people, they just need a warm meal and a hug. And Paul knows that. He knows the dynamics of life in a church community and says some people are going to more easily get wound up in their own head. They're going to be very self-critical. They're going to be self-condemning a lot. Those kind of people, the discouraged people, lift them up. Don't beat them down. Help them. And then he says, and there's another kind of person in your church, Thessalonians, weak. You have weak people among you. And we don't know exactly what the circumstance was for the people that Paul are talking about are weak. It could be a variety of things. It could be that they're physically sick, weak. Um, it could be that they are theologically weak. And most of the time, Paul's writing, that means they're legalists. They don't understand the gospel very well. It could be that they're socially weak, financially weak. I think a good way of thinking about uh, the weak here is to say that they're the people whom society has crushed. They're at the bottom. And they can't make it on their own. There's a lot here to say from Paul that your church, Thessalonians, or our church, Sound City, has people that are all this kind of way. Sometimes people need to be warned. Sometimes people just need to be comforted. Sometimes people just need to be lifted up. They need to be helped. They, they can't do it. They can't get better on their own. And then he unites all of this to say, be patient with them all. Be patient with them all. This is a, um, a wonderful way to wrap all this up because the Christian life, like I'm saying, is not a complete sanctification view. It's progressive. And if you understand all the ways that God has been working on you through the years and the growth that you still have ahead of you and are convicted by sin as the Holy Spirit brings it to mind and other people in the community help you see those things, guess what? You start to say, how patient of God. How incredibly patient of God to just give me another day to give me my family, to give me my spouse, to give me a community. Though I routinely rebel against him. And if, if you have that gospel-shaped view of the Christian life where you recognize how God is patient with you, what's the natural outworking of that? You will be patient with other people. And that's what Paul calls us to. And as this happens, there's, there's a real uh, profound effect that Paul says that it will have. He says, so that no one repays evil for evil to anyone, but always pursue what is good for one another and for all. You see, if you live like this, then what's going to happen if someone does you wrong and you say, that hurt, but how can I help them? It's different. Uh, there's a good example historically just a couple hundred years later from a guy named Heracles, who nobody knows, uh, but he was a contemporary of Socrates, and he, he thought about this. There was a big debate in the Roman world to say, what's better here? Uh, is, should we have vengeance as a virtue in our society when people do wrong that we just get them back retributive justice? Should we do that? And a lot of people said, yes, absolutely. And then other people like Socrates said, you know, maybe that's not the best thing to have, or maybe it shouldn't be at the top. And, um, and so Heracles uh, represents this uh, short conversation, debate that was had, saying, we should imitate Socrates, who, when someone said to him, may I die if I do not avenge myself on you? He replied, may I die if I do not make you my friend? And that's what we want to do as a church, that as we start to uh, behave like this to each other, it goes out. It goes out to the outside world. And all of a sudden, our, our desires, our goals are different than the rest of the world. 
And I'd like to pause here just to talk about membership for a little bit. This passage is one of the key reasons why we as a church practice membership. It's because as you start to look at these commands and um, the expectations for leaders, for members of the church, then what you have to do is, as a church is say, now who's committed to this? You see, that question I gave you at the beginning, do you want to grow, is really a presupposition. You are presupposing, or a church is presupposing that that's the way that you want to live. In membership, you move from presupposition to expectation, where you say, I am a committed member of this church, and I am committed to living in these ways. And for us, we have 12 steps, uh, 12 um, points of membership by which we say, here's our expectations of what it means to live in a godly community with each other. And this is the kind of thing that was started to go on in the ancient world, where you have a new community of a local church saying, how do we relate to each other? What expectations do we have of each other? And eventually, the longer a church lives, the more, and the older it gets, the more that has to be clarified to say, here's what we expect of you. Here's what we expect of you. So I encourage you, sign up for membership if you haven't, or go through the class and see what we talk about as a local church when it comes to membership. It reflects one of the main values that we have. We're talking about growing together. Membership for us is a way of recognizing spiritual maturity. So I ask you, do you want to grow? That's what Paul's saying. And he moves on from leaders and members to now talking about attitudes of the heart. So not only what should you look for in leaders and what to do with them, not only what each member has as a responsibility in the local church, now he'll say, regardless, you need to have attitudes of the heart. And so he talks about three things here. He says, rejoice always, pray constantly, give thanks in everything. These three things are just a shorthand way of encapsulating so much of the Christian life. Rejoice always. The rejoicing here is not some superficial, temporary, knee-jerk, defensive reaction. This is a deep, abiding happiness in God. That when difficulties come into your life, you can still say, I know God. I love him. I have a relationship with him. He loves me. There's a, a deep rejoicing in being in union with Christ that supersedes everything else in life. So he says, rejoice always. And he says, pray constantly. Out of all of these, I think this is probably the one that guilts most people because they assume that this means uh, you have to constantly be talking out loud in prayer to God. Uh, I don't think that's what this means. Rather, it is an inward attitude of the heart by which you are having a conversation with God about everything in life. Sadly for us, most of the time that this happens, uh, it is merely supplication, where you run into some difficulty. You get into a car wreck, or you're about to get into a car wreck, and what do you do? God, help! That's good. And we want that kind of reaction, immediate reaction, when we're in distress. But praying constantly is not merely supplication. It is adoration. It's thanksgiving. So I question for myself, you should for yourself as well. Through the day, how much of your internal dialogue is, man, this just isn't working. God, will you help me with this? Okay, thank you. Okay. Or is it, Father, thank you so much for this good weather. What a blessing. What a gift. Or even more, Father, what do you want me to say to this person? I'm about to be around these people. I just want to give them something that would encourage them. That's praying constantly. Not only that, he says, give thanks in everything. And he does not say, give thanks for everything. Okay? Our view of the Christian life in the Bible is such that bad things happen and they can be objectively bad. We are not to give thanks for bad things that happen in our life. Rather, we are to give thanks in all bad things or in all things that happen in our life. It's really important for us to not have a superficial attitude towards these religious practices, and I use religion in a good way, that this is 
This is uh, something that is connected as a deep attitude of the heart to the Father, giving thanks and everything. And just as a, a nerdy reference for you, the antecedent here that comes up, um, for this is God's will for you in Christ Jesus, for this is God's will, is connected to not just giving thanks and everything, but all three of them in Greek. So rejoice always. God's will for you is to rejoice always. Pray constantly. That's God's will for you too. And giving thanks in everything. God's will is for you to live this kind of life with the inward, the attitudes of your heart to be such that you're constantly, constantly rejoicing, constantly praying, constantly giving thanks. Now this, what does this sound like to you? This sounds, this doesn't sound like a human being to me when I look at this. And again, we're, we're not talking about someone who, who is superficial in these behaviors. In the Christian life, there are step forwards, steps back, but this is what Paul calls the Thessalonians to, these inward heart realities that are just under everything that they are doing. And he moves on from there to talk about spirits. Or I have spirit-led lifestyle. I say spirits because there are really spirits involved as Paul's talking about this. He moves from talking about heart motivations to what you do as a community when you're gathered and you're scattered in relation to prophecy. Now, prophecy is something that Paul really gets into in 1 Corinthians 14, and I'm not going to spend a ton of time on it this morning, but talking about it, he says two very strong commands. He gives five imperatives, but the first two are doozies. He says literally, do not extinguish the flame. I think the NIV has that translation, and uh, that's a good one. Do not extinguish the flame. CSB says, don't stifle the spirit. And then, don't despise prophecies. But literally, it's don't extinguish the flame. Don't annihilate prophecies. Paul has a very strong reaction here to uh, something that had happened in the Thessalonian church where they said, uh, we have some bad charismatic experiences. We don't know exactly what, you know, how this should work, but we do know it's kind of weird. We're uncomfortable with it, and people are doing some bad things, some good things, so we're just going to say, don't do it. Paul comes and says, you cannot do that. You can't, to do that would be to extinguish the spirit. Now, prophecy is a spiritual gift, Paul lists in 1 Corinthians 14, and he says here that that is something to be done with regulation. And the primary regulation for it is testing it by the word of God. And if you don't know what prophecy is, biblically, prophecy is the future coming through a human that is broken. So we have God's word, and there's lots of prophecy in God's word. And we would say all prophecy in the scripture is 100% accurate. It always comes to pass. In the Old Testament, if you had a prophet and they prophesied something that didn't happen, you kill them because that was wrong. It was wrong prophecy. In the New Testament, there's prophecy, but the prophecy is recognized as not being perfect. I'll give you an example. If a member of your community group comes to you and says, I feel like, you know, I spent some time in prayer, praying for you, and I just feel like God has a difficult time for you in the future. Something, something's going to happen. I don't know what it is, but I just want to encourage you to trust him regardless and have that, have that mindset beforehand. That would be a good example of prophecy. A bad example of prophecy would be where someone in the church comes up to you and says, I think that uh, I have a word from the Lord and it seems like you are really lonely. It seems like you're really lonely. And I just want to encourage you that I think the Lord wants you to get into an open marriage. 
that you need to pursue some other relationships. You would say with Paul, false, right? Doesn't pass, doesn't pass the test of scripture. Why? Because we see all over and even a couple chapters ago that Paul says, this is God's will for your life. Your sanctification, that you can control your body and not have sexual impropriety going on. So we take prophecy, we test it with scripture, and we can use it. That's Paul's argument. Now, this, this was something in the ancient world that was widely known and used as divination, where people, for whatever means, practices, would try to get uh, a read on the future and um, try to control other people. Paul says, this is not divination. It's not divination. It is legitimate. Don't cancel it out. But rather, when you hear it, test it. And by the way, this is always done in a very humble attitude. This is not done in a thus saith the Lord way. This is, I think this is what God is saying. I I think this is probably what's going to happen. And if it doesn't, okay. If it does, glory to God. So Paul says, as a local church community, really what you need is you need to be led by the Spirit. You need to be led by the Spirit. And so he doesn't keep talking about that for long. Like I said, it's on the way out and instruction, but he's going to tell them, don't. Don't just try to do all this by yourself. Some things in the spirit will make you uncomfortable, and that can be okay. Rather, follow the spirit. And lastly, Paul moves on here to say, um, to give a, a final blessing. And he provides a blessing through and through. He says, now may the God of peace himself sanctify you completely and may your whole spirit, soul, and body be kept sound and blameless at the coming of our Lord Jesus Christ. He who calls you is faithful. He will do it. Brothers and sisters, pray for us also. And he will say, greet each other with a a kiss. And we do take that as cultural still happens on the other side of the globe in normal life. Just be careful about doing it here. That's all all I'll say about that. Um, But he also charges that this would be read in the public community, right? He says, read this. Don't just have like a couple of people teach from it. You read it. Let everybody know what I'm saying. Because he's charging it to them. And as he, has, as he does, he ends with a blessing that is an invocation that is also a prayer that is effective. This one kind of threw me when I was studying for this. I'm like, what, what is Paul doing as he ends here? He's, he's ending with a request. Now may the God of peace himself. But it's also somewhat related to prophecy and divination in terms of an invocation. He's claiming something. I am not for name it and claim it theology and prosperity gospel. But Paul here does exercise some authority to say, if God has said something, it's okay to say it. It's okay to trust it. It's okay to rely on it. May the God of peace himself sanctify you completely. That sanctify is being made holy. Be holy as I am holy is the Old Testament commandment. And Paul says, May God make you holy. Do you want to grow, Christian? May God do it. But then he changes uh, just after that to say, and God is faithful. He will do it. So if we were to summarize Paul here at the end, he would say, may God, as a prayer. But he would also say he will. And that is where we live in the Christian life in respect to our sanctification. It is totally appropriate, right, and, and worthy of us to stop and to pray, God, would you grow me? God, would you give me more passion, more desire? God, would you mature me? And at the same time say, with all confidence, God will do it. He will do it. This passage reminded me of a couple things. One was a man that I knew by the name of Jack Fry. 
Jack Fry was somebody who I met in my early college years playing racquetball and uh, didn't know who he was at all in Tomball, Texas. But come to find out, he was a uh, philanthropist. He was a patron, a patron very much to the uh, number of civic societies. He had helped plant a number of churches, even though he wasn't the preaching pastor. And uh, he was in real estate. He, he sent all kinds of kids through local camps to hear the gospel. Just a fantastic guy. You know, just one of those like, man, <laughs> I'll never be like that kind of guys. And um, he had a few friends always in his Christian community he was doing this with. And uh, five years ago, he went out on a boat to go fishing in the Gulf towards the Mississippi with two friends. He goes out there, they get into rough waters, the boat capsizes, and he drowns. And one of his best friends, who was a pastor that planned the churches with him. And sad, yeah, the end, we're done. Uh, sad story. Just kidding. He's, but, but as that happens, like, uh, that hit people a hard way, right? Here's some, a fixed, fixture of our community, someone who's so worthy of modeling and it, it, it spawned all these conversations about, man, what a wonderful guy Jack was, but also um, the Jesus that he believed in, he wanted everybody to know about. And as, you know, everyone's kind of giving stories at the end, there was a young man that had driven him to the boat dock that morning when he, he got out to the boat, and um, the young man who was driving him said, when he opened the door, he threw a stack of Bible verses at me, cards. He said, quiz me. And then went on to get on the boat after the ride. And I thought, what a beautiful picture. 86 years old, getting to the end of his life and continually discontent with not growing enough with not being mature enough to say, man, I need, I need someone to help me learn my Bible. At 86 years old, quiz me on it. This is the kind of life that Paul is talking about where he says, may God, he will. And the blessing also very similar to what Jesus does at the end of the Gospels, where when we see Jesus, and if we were to superimpose what Paul's talking about on Jesus, we see he is the leader who bears with all of his followers to the point of death. Jesus is also a member that is willing to say the hard thing, willing to come alongside of you. Jesus is this person who has an unbroken attitude of the heart towards God in prayer and rejoicing and thanksgiving. Jesus is this person who rightly follows the Spirit never stifle the spirit. And he's also this person that leaves a blessing. And we see this at the end of Luke, chapter 24, verse 50. Then he led them out, his disciples after his resurrection, to the vicinity of Bethany. And lifting up his hands, he blessed them. And while he was blessing them, he left them and was carried up into heaven. After worshiping him, they returned to Jerusalem with great joy. And they were continually in the temple praising God. You see, Jesus has this benediction at the end of his earthly ministry, doesn't he? May God, he will. Let's pray. Father, as we come to you and acknowledge our weakness, acknowledge our shortcomings, We also come to you and just say, Lord, would you, would you mature me? Would you grow me? And thank you so much that you are faithful to do it. That it is your desire, it's your agenda to move me into Christ-likeness. And Lord, where we, we lack the passion, we lack the fervor, Father, I ask that you just fan it in the flame, like Paul said to Timothy. Fan it in flame. Not extinguishing the spirit, but relying on it. 
It's so hard for us to keep straight all of these different commands, three things and five things and four things. And, and Lord, instead, would you give us this mindset that Paul's talking about to follow the Spirit into all these things, into maturity, into Christ. And we pray in his name. Amen. Well, church, each week in response to the preaching of God's word, we remember and participate in communion where we we remember Jesus' body broken for us and his blood shed for us in the gospel. And so we're going to do that this morning. If you're new with us and you don't believe in Christ, we would ask that you would refrain from this as this, this wouldn't have meaning for you. But the way that we practice it is to come down the center aisles, go out around the sides, grab the bread and the juice as your conscience permits, um, uh, the juice or the wine, and then uh, you can take it there, go back to your seat as we remember Jesus. And I would like to read us and uh, lead us in reading this passage that Paul gives us where he talks about communion in 1 Corinthians. I'll go ahead and invite the communion service forward and uh, read for you. For I received from the Lord what I also deliver to you, that the Lord Jesus, on the night when he was betrayed, took bread, and when he had given thanks, he broke it, and said, this is my body, which is for you. Do this in remembrance of me. In the same way, he also took the cup after supper, saying, this cup is the new covenant in my blood. Do this as often as you drink it in remembrance of me. For as often as you eat this bread and drink the cup, you proclaim the Lord's death until he comes. Whoever, therefore, eats the bread or drinks the cup of the Lord in an unworthy manner will be guilty concerning the body and the blood of the Lord. Let a person examine himself then, and so eat of the bread and drink of the cup. Let me go ahead and pray for us. Father, we do come before you in in our weakness, in our frailties, God, we just say, would you lead us? Would you lead us in this Christian life? Thank you so much for the life of your son who stands as a witness to us that you will. You will lead us in all of our difficulties and all of our besetting sins and all of our steps backwards. You will lead us. Father, would you give us a confidence in you? And we ask in your son's name. Amen.